So today's message concludes our series on the church and actually continues last week's message. Paul had written the Corinthians the famous line, love is patience, love is kind. But it wasn't well received. So we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 2.11. But I, Paul, call on God as witness against me. It was to spare you that I didn't come again to Corinth. I do not mean to imply that we lord it over your faith. Rather, we are workers with you for your journey because you stand firm in the faith. So I made up my mind not to come make you another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, whom is there to make me glad but the very one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I am confident about all of you, that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote you out of much distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but to some extent, not to exaggerate it, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is enough for such a person. Now, instead, you should forgive and console him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, I wrote for another reason, to test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I, Paul, also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have, any, have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And we do this, the forgiving, so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his many schemes. When I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. But my mind could not rest because I could not find my brother Titus there. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the serenity to accept those things that we cannot change, and that you would give us the courage to attempt to change those things that we can. And by the expounding of your word, may you teach us the wisdom to know the difference. We ask this in your most holy name. Amen. So our final foray into the church, where, what, who, what, how, why, I decided which way points the church. See, I have a vision for the church in America and for this community. There is the exciting prospect that 160,000 people in this very county have no identified religion. We have as a church nowhere to go but up. Surely among them there are many lost sheep who grew up in the church who just haven't found a good home, and there are surely among them some who have never heard heads or tails or any of it. So I also have hope. I have hope that this congregation, the one down the streets and all of them, will step up into the present situation to be the lighthouse and the salt that Christ called us to be when we expounded his Sermon on the Mount. Now some, they may look around and think quite differently. Not everyone looks at that optimistically. And that's why today's sermon on which way to go, I felt was necessary for a long time now. Now, I will disclaimer myself before I begin. 
We live in 2020. There are cases, and I want this to be set up front so it doesn't get in the back of our head, but what about, but what about? There are cases that by their nature require a firm inquisition. There are things terrible that happen in the church where we must stop and hammer it out, and the situation is really bad if we don't. But I think most of us can understand that there's a difference between those and the common issues that churches tend to complain about. So way back in the Old Testament, when Moses approached the stormy banks of the Red Sea, the people complained in panic because they just loved to complain. And Pharaoh's army was pressing down. Moses cried out to the Lord to save him. And the Lord tells Moses in Exodus 14, 13, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people of Israel to move forward, even into the stormy sea. That story must have been on Paul's mind as he wrote last week's message. The divisions that he was seeing in his Corinthian church, they had to stop and they had to move. They had to become one body and unite and stop fighting each other. Or perhaps Paul wasn't thinking as a rabbi, he was just thinking as a pastor and he had a deep awareness that the Christian walk is never static. It moves forward or it slides backward. Pastor Greg Laurie says it's like a greased pole. You can climb up or you can slide down, but you can't stay where you are. And Paul tries to relate this in that first letter. In 1 Corinthians 9, he writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last, but we do it to get a crown that'll last forever. Therefore, I, Paul, do not run around like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. The Christian life is a race and you have to run races to win them. But maybe, Maybe Paul should have just expected the whole blow-up he got. But to preach the greatest of these in love in a place like Corinth just wasn't going to work. Corinthian was Roman, think about it, Roman slang for an immoral person. And reading 1 Corinthians, there's a laundry list of a church that lives up to that. You see, the main problem Paul had with this church was they couldn't leave the Las Vegas lifestyle. It, it wasn't a church taking the gospel out into Corinth. It was a church that was pulling Corinth into the church and changing how it viewed the gospel. They used grace to, to brag to Paul about how they were so immoral. The Lord's Supper, as we talked about on Ash Wednesday, was divisive and broken into social classes. People were getting hammered. We saw a hint last week in the regular service of the spiritual superiority complexes slipping in. And if you read through it, there's a laundry list. People were denying the resurrection because they had better philosophies. And Paul even found them divided over their leadership. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is, one of y'all says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Paul still speaking, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
Not with wisdom and eloquence, let the cross be emptied of its power. That's the key section for unlocking what Paul's getting at here. Disciples are part of a church, and they really can't move forward as a church, as a full body, if the church is static. And the only way Paul ever sees a church moving forward is this key line here, but to preach the gospel. We have to preach the gospel to get a church to move forward. That letter of 1 Corinthians caused a blow up though. We read Paul cried. We read in other places people in the church cried. It was painful. Yet, Paul's response to that pain is nothing that we would culturally expect. In American culture, we, we want to talk it out, or at the very least avoid it, maybe soothe everything over. And at the very least, at a church fight, we want the pastor to get involved and, and to make sure he can fix everything. Paul wouldn't fit our definition of a good pastor because when this whole fight happens, he goes on a mission trip. <laughs> Bye, see ya. I'm going to go preach the gospel. I'm moving forward. I'll see you later. Now, the question is, why does Paul do that? Well, first, I think Paul had earthly wisdom. There is no way to ever resolve a conflict that both sides are intent on having. Just ask anyone trying to make peace in the Middle East. Second, Paul had godly wisdom. He sets the fight aside and moves forward. And we read today that God opened a door for me in 2 Corinthians. And furthermore, if you read the letter in its entirety, Paul bookends the entire issue of the dispute by his missionary work and forwarding the gospel throughout the Greek-speaking area. Now, the one thing where Paul does do what we expect, he doesn't let it linger. He doesn't let it go forever. He sends Titus, his brother Titus, who in what we read today he was missing, but he sends Titus. I contend the church has always needed more and needs today a lot of Tituses. So, if you have a kid, maybe name him Titus and he could be a peacemaker we need. We like to imagine the perfect pastor, 30 years of experience, at 25 years of age, with that poor 0.5 of the 2.5 kids that can fix everything. But Paul probably wasn't the world's best peacemaker. God skills some people to be exceptionally good at it, and Titus was one of those people who really lived up to the word, blessed are the peacemakers. But yet even Titus is not quite the way we'd imagine him. And we get a very rare peek under Titus's hood. And what makes him a peacemaker? In the book of Titus, for all his social skill, for all of his loving kindness, Titus is still on a grand mission just like Paul, as Titus 3, 7 through 10 sums up his approach. Having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a factitious person once and then warn them a second time, and then after that, have nothing to do with them. Titus is to remind the people again of forward movement, 
They are saved to do good works. No less than Paul, he doesn't want the church bogged down. Two warnings on church fights is all you're getting from Titus, and then you done, kid. Now, I think the factitious person is worth delving into quite a bit. We tend to define the term culturally, yet the Bible does give some firm guidelines that go beyond our personal opinions. We see here in Titus that if a person is given to debates, not because they are forced onto them, but because they seek them out, a love of conflict against the admonition, as far as you are able to live peacefully with everyone in Romans 12, that love of conflict marks a divisive person. But in scripture, there's a whole list of familiar troubles we tolerate way too often. Gossip, slander, and all the like. But I would say perhaps the hardest for us to see today in a society based on individual rights is that the factitious person in a church setting is a person who insists on never ever being wronged, of having it their way like this is a Burger King or McDonald's, and demanding apologies for every perceived offense, no matter how minor. See, St. Paul spoke to that issue last week, and perhaps that's why he drew the conflict out of this church. Paul wrote what we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 14, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, and it's not easily angered. It also keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. That's where some soul-searching application. When we get upset, do we want revenge or do we want restoration? Are my complaints about other people based on preferences, tastes, just not liking them, or are they really the big picture? Do I get frustrated at the people instead of the situations? Am I moving forward in my life, in my Christian walk, or has my anger caused me to stop and fossilize where I am? Divisiveness is a force that often seeks to bring in other people, too. Is my conflict now building a mob? One thing I've had to work on a lot in my life, and I ask myself constantly when I'm upset, am I bringing other people in to mediate? Or am I telling other people about the fight because I want them to back up my position? Tituses are good. We need more Tituses. Mobs are not. When we call people over to our side, we're forming armies, and that's a sign of a war. And the church in Corinth was warring. We see this, I'm going to get other people over to my side thinking right on the page with plays to Roman government power. 1 Corinthians 6 says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather just be wronged? Why not just be cheated? Now, I'm afraid American Christianity has become so used to suing itself and each other that this legalism has even crept into our reading of Scripture. Like Garth Brooks sings, baby, we're good at bearing the hatchet, but we leave the handle sticking out. Jesus' method of conflict resolution is simple. Forgive your brother seven times 77, or do some log surgery to your own eye before you go poking other people in nerves. End of sentence. 
Now, it is healthy to have opinions and preferences that don't match. Scripture tells us as iron sharpens iron, two men can grind against each other. And in business nowadays, we talk about conflict management because we see it as a positive force. If I have two architects fighting to build a skyscraper, they're going to build a really good one. But what is not healthy is when the hand says to the head, I don't need you. And the hand is laid down and the congregation gets the amputation saw. Yet I have seen it done in many evangelical circles. Instead of seven times 77, we reach for Jesus' excommunication proceedings. Now, I believe Matthew 18 can be a good model for resolution. But as Paul says in today's text, we must be wise to deal with the devil's divisive schemes. The devil doesn't aim at sinners. He wants to knock out the good sheep the worst. Matthew 18, often used to say we should mediate and get friends to come help with us, in the actual text says, when a brother sins against you. And this is Jesus who said, forgive him seven times 77. This is the scripture where it says, you've also wronged other people. This is not the sort of thing where Paul tells us in another place, you have to go out of the world to find perfect places, people. This is black sin Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. And what's more, Jesus there doesn't say when one-to-one -one doesn't work, when you can't work out this black sin with your brother, to go get two elders. He doesn't say to go get a Titus or peacemakers. I find I often go get friends who just agree with me. I have a habit of building factions. But Jesus in Matthew 18 is the God of the Old Testament law, and he's applying it that way. That law of which Christ warned us, not one iota of will go away. And he says exactly as in the Jewish law to get two or more eyewitnesses to the black sin, as under the law three are needed. Then when the person in deepest blackest sin won't listen and is caught so red-handed there's three witnesses, Jesus there says the church's action is to expel. Now this gets to an unfortunate part of life. We can only resolve what both parties want to. It's like the scene in Cool Hand Luke where the sheriff says, I don't like it any more than you do, but that's the way he wants it. If neither side wants peace, that's why we created things like the civil court. Or Paul suggested above, we appoint leaders within the church sometimes for the sake of the mission. We sometimes have to have leaders solve it for us if we can't come to an agreement. Now, just like Titus, 1 Corinthians 14, and all Jesus' other teachings, forgive or you will not be forgiven, is still in charge, folks. The case, even in Matthew 18, is only to get the evil repented of. We have no license in any congregation to ever undo love keeps no records of wrong. There is no room in proper Christian discipline for pride or a sense of, hey, hey, got you now, now you owe me. Because my friends, Jesus has paid all your debts and he pays all your brothers too. For heaven's own sake, I must go here. I must say it. Will we at least let, will we be so cold that we will let 38 of Christ's lashes pay for our own sins, but demand he take one for the wrongs that have been done to our own selves? I fear a great many attitudes that I read about, 
sometimes see or hear myself, can only make me weep like Paul. What is Christian in demanding the pound of flesh? Revenge is mine, says the Lord. But as our solution is forward, I must move on. The key to a divisive person is they never think they are. If you worry about it, you're on the right track. If your positions are so holy that to even question them is a sin, there might be trouble. Even in a debate that has to happen, even if you're right, we can entertain thoughts without accepting them. A divisive person, though, just can't move on. You solve the issue and they say, stop, look, another one. Having found conflict, they'll dwell in it. Martin Luther said, facing conflicts in his congregation, that he just felt when bread was invented, some folks just insisted on eating acorns. And Moses saw in his day, as our first reading, that no matter how great the promise of the future, that kingdom that God was giving to them, that new land, someone still wanted to drag the whole of Israel back into Egypt. Oh, they could praise the cucumbers, the leeks, the melons the Nile gave them. But let's not forget the lash of the slaver. When we want to stop and go back into old conflicts and we don't find ways to move forward together as a body, are we not just putting ourselves into the same conflict and the same things we don't like to go to? Let us seek to be free from yesterday to kill it so the power of the resurrection can move us to new life. And that's why even Titus must be told Keep moving forward. You are saved to do good works. So simply to summarize this all so far, the church has two great commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. There are times where we need to deal with violations of that. Yes, I'm not insensitive to pains. I'm not insensitive to insults. And God has seen your tears. But after the night of sorrow, the new morning comes. And the church's commission in Matthew 28 is different from the commandments. The Greek reads it best. As you are going, make disciples. Church conflicts thrive the most when the going becomes stopped. A church moving forward has the advantage that it's going somewhere. They might not know where, but it's going there together. There is unity in looking to the future. In rhetoric, they say you can't even solve issues in the present. What I say is good, you'll say is bad, and we're never going to agree. People rarely move on when they talk about what is and isn't good. If I think the economy is good and you think it's bad, we're not going to agree. But if I say it can get better going to the future moving forward, I could probably get both of you to agree. Because see, when we look out to the future, we see what can be, what might be. It's open and bright. All those things that seem so big now, once in the past, and we drive on, they grow smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror. Isn't that what we assure all of our young people caught in high school drama? Oh, mama, he left me. I'll never survive. Basically, instead of busying itself with conflict, a forward-moving church sets its hands to a new task and growing up. It must focus on what lay before it. It's got to keep its eyes on the road. And a forward church is also an outward church. Unlike some who are eager to blame culture and lament that all the Corinthian chunk is coming into the congregation, the forward-looking part of the church carries the gospel out into Corinth. 
It doesn't lament change as being yet again another loss of what little ground we have left. It sees change as a positive increase in a shared bank account. Paul's struggle in Corinth was mainly that it was stopped. When he came, it was the same old conflicted state as he wrote about. And when he asked, what's new? It probably seemed they only spoke about what had already happened and what they were already fighting about. The church was even becoming inward with people asking, what do I get out of this? What do I think? I'm sure Paul would have just been happy if he showed up and they gave him new things to complain about. I think marriage offers an example. Take an inward focused marriage. The wife offends the husband, he is hurt very bad. So he wants to take the day off and confront his wife all day on the issue. He'll probably take actions that divide the couple. I'm right, you're wrong, demand an apology. The main thing is by stopping on the conflict, his wife now becomes a problem to him. Something to solve, something holding him back from moving forward in his life. Example two would be a marriage that keeps a proper outward focus, or to use the term, us as a couple growing together. Same thing, that man's wife offends him, he's hurt just as bad, but he's gotta get to work. Because he's busy at work dealing with new problems, speaking to new mean and friendly customers, he starts forgetting what the fight was even about in the first place. So he comes home and does the wise thing every married man in this congregation knows that he should do, he apologizes to his wife. Because she is the flesh of his flesh and his helpmate, not his enemy. My opinion on the church is very similar. We can be a people who stop at every impasse and try to sort everything of it. There's a weakness inherent to this approach that if the situation requires any spiritual growth beyond our current status, we will never solve more issues than we currently can right now. Because believe me, if we could fix it right now, we would have. Hope is not a strategy. The alternative is we can be a church of people who are moving forward. Whether we cannot solve a problem today because we need to grow, whatever we can't fix today because we need to learn a little bit more about each other, that will all grow more and more manageable as forward movement happens. It's kind of like as Paul moved the church in Corinth forward. I'm sure the second Corinthians church was able to do a lot more than the first Corinthians church. But even more, Jesus demands we release wrongs and follow him. It's dangerous to go against his word. So how do we apply this? Getting to the big giant thing. I don't think forward movement of the church particularly lay in like a vision statement or something. I think the real power comes from what Paul put in his letters. They read as a call for every Christian to start to think, where am I myself stopped? How do I show signs of being stopped? There are myriads of ways to improve and gain momentum on the Christian walk. Are you weak on scripture? Read some. Do you not pray? Pray. Do you not forgive? Forgive. The trouble is we look at those things and think they're too great for me. There's so much scripture to read. We're talking about momentum. It's one foot in front of the other, even if inch by inch and you have no clue where you are going, just get the momentum going. If you never ever pray at all, a Lord's Prayer once a month is 100% improvement. If you know nothing of the Bible, read Titus, it's three chapters. You now know a whole book of the Bible. Hands a little stronger, feet a little faster. 
For those who've ever played video games, it's leveling up. For those who like sports, it's increasing your stats. And that's why scripture, I will let make the final appeal, and this is not every verse upon it. Philippians 3, not that I've obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but I do one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. Isaiah 43. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm making all things new. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Or 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We never get 3 Corinthians. Paul was worried. He writes in 2 Corinthians 12, I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. If we sense any of that, it's time to get moving forward. Let us pray.